According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 13 is our passage today. Luke 13. Been here for a couple of weeks now, looking at episode 20 in the uh, last Judean and Prean ministry of Jesus Christ. One of the longest worded uh, events in the harmony of the Gospels that we're making use of. Episode 20 begins teaching, return to Jerusalem with special words about Herod. And uh, there's actually two parts to this episode in verses 22 through 35. In uh, 22 through 30, you have some teaching of his regarding the coming kingdom of heaven and striving to enter the narrow door. And uh, those that are uh, dismissed from the uh, kingdom feast are uh, taken to the place of the weeping and the gnashing of teeth, which we studied last week. And we want to get back to that here this morning. And then we can move on to verses 31 through 35, where he is warned by some Pharisees about Herod that Herod uh, wants to put him to death, and so they were warning him to depart to, uh, to safer regions. And uh, you can take this warning a couple of different ways, uh, depending upon the genuineness of the people warning him or the deceitfulness of the people warning him. And uh, you can evaluate that for what it is. I think the Scripture is pretty uh, clear that uh, Herod was not, did not have harmful intent uh, early or even late regarding, uh, regarding Jesus. So... We'll, uh, we'll address that here today. Before we begin, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer to make sure we are filled with the Spirit and prepared to handle spiritual truth. Almighty Father, we thank You for this day and what a, what a blessing it is for us here in the middle of a week during uh, the morning hours to simply uh, set aside this time and come together for uh, prayer time. The ladies had a prayer time just now and then to come together for a Bible study. And Father, thank you for uh, allowing us this privilege and this blessing. We ask for your hand of uh, blessing on the teaching, Father, particularly as we address aspects of the kingdom of heaven. And uh, we just thank you again for being so faithful. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. All right. We covered two points of our outline last week and came to a little bit of a conundrum at the end, so we'll just kind of recap a little bit of that and then uh, move on to uh, the new material here today. Let's recognize, first of all, that this is a part of Luke, what's called Luke's travelogue, his journeys uh, on the way to Jerusalem, and uh, doesn't actually start here. It goes back even to chapter 9, where in verses 51 and 53, he's on his way to Jerusalem. And effectively, you can view everything uh, after the Galilean ministry as on his way to Jerusalem. And even though it takes nearly a year, and even though he travels to Perea and then back to Judea and Perea and back to Judea, he is nevertheless on his way to Jerusalem. He understands that uh, from the, the, fi- uh, the previous Passover, where he fed the 5,000 and, and did not go to Jerusalem, that the next Passover would be his, would be his Passover to be the Passover lamb and give his life for the sin of the world. So when he drew his Galilean ministry to a close and began traveling, uh, he's been on the way to Jerusalem ever since. And uh, you've got a chain of uh, verses there in, in the Gospel of Luke that, 
spells that out for you. And then he's asked a question regarding why it is that so few folks are being saved. And I think we want to identify the terminology here for being saved. Someone said to him, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? And let's understand the idea of salvation as it would be to a first century Jewish believer looking forward to the coming kingdom. All right. We uh, we think of salvation in terms of uh, our sins being forgiven, in terms of going to heaven when we die, in terms of other things that we think of when we think of salvation. Well, to the Jews, what they were thinking in terms of salvation uh, would be, yes, of course, the forgiveness of sin, receiving eternal life. Uh, but more than simply going to heaven when they die was the mindset that heaven is coming to earth, that the kingdom of God is coming to earth. Thy will be done. Thy kingdom come. You know, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And the idea that the Davidic throne is going to be uh, the, the greater son of David is going to sit on the Davidic throne here on earth. And the Jews are going to have preeminence of all the nations of the earth. That's their mindset as it pertains to salvation. All right. Now, that's a little bit different. It might be awkward for us to think about because we're not as church age saints. Our citizenship is in heaven. Our focus is on heaven. Our treasures laid up in heaven. Our uh, our wealth is in heaven and everything else is oriented to heaven. Not so for the Jewish people or their concept of salvation. Their land grant is not a heavenly land grant. It's an earthly land grant. And I think if the more you can kind of separate out our heavenly mindedness with Israel's earthly mindedness, that will be one of the, the key features that will help you distinguish between Israel and the church. Maybe it might help us this way. We we think of salvation on the one hand, and then we think about millennium and fullness of time and eschatology on the other hand, don't we? Don't we tend to think of them as two separate deals? Salvation in this one respect and then millennium in another respect? Don't we separate those? We kind of do. Because, see, we're saved right here and right now, right? I've been saved for 30 years and longer. But the um, we're not in the millennium yet. That's still future. And I haven't gotten to heaven yet. That's still a future, see. So, again, putting yourself back to an Old Testament mindset of looking forward. Messiah is coming. Messiah is coming. And yes, the Messiah is the Lamb of God who's going to take away the sin of the world. But Messiah is also prophet, priest, and king. Messiah is the one who's going to sit on the throne of David and rule this world. Now, combining those concepts, it can be very clear which one takes uh, preeminence. Which one gets the focus of attention? Which one, in fact, so much so that earthly minded Jews couldn't give two hoots about that sin deal and spiritual life and whatever. They just want the politics. They just want to start conquering the Romans. They want to rule this place. So bring in the kingdom. And that's their whole mindset, see. So a lot of this uh, might be awkward for us to think of, but we need to try to do, do the best we can to put ourselves back into an Old Testament mindset. So are there just a few who are being saved? And so he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer and say say to you, I do not know where you are from. And so the urgency, the imminency of this offer is with the recognition that once the door is shut, it's shut. That the opportunity for... uh, Entrance, the opportunity for believing, the opportunity for faith and getting saved is of a finite duration. See, and then if they don't accept the offer now, then it's no longer going to be available to them once the door is shut. 
And uh, anyway, that's what we want to take away from this uh, from this episode. It's not entirely different from our own application in the church, because we also have a door being shut imminently at some point in time when the trumpet sounds and, the, and we're snatched up and we're gone. Then uh, that's think of it. That's a door being shut in a very real way. Now, those that are left behind after the rapture that enter into the tribulational age or enter into the the uh, resumed stewardship of Israel, they could, they could still get saved within the capabilities of the gospel being preached and, and being able to accept it, recognizing, of course, there's a great delusion that comes in Second Thessalonians chapter 2, and you've got to understand that. But the door is closed to the church. We can at least agree on that. And so if somebody gets saved uh, the day after the rapture, they're not in the church. They're believing Jews or believing Gentiles. Once again, Old Testament saints, similar to how folks got saved before the day of Pentecost, before church got started. And so they're going to be saved and they're going to have to face Antichrist and all the horrible things of the tribulation and things happening there. That door is shut because they missed the rapture, as it were. They were not saved when the opportunity was presented to them. So uh, it's similar to what we have here in this text with a gospel being preached with a kingdom being offered and the imminency of that door being shut where, no, it's too late. You should have believed prior to that door being shut. At whatever point, when the number is complete, when that number is complete, the door is shut. And so we see that there. Now there, um, I'm going to skip through the subpoints we covered in A and B and C. And D, and what we uh, ended, ran out of time with last week was this weeping of gnashing of teeth and the two primary views. The weeping and gnashing of teeth, it is characteristic of the furnace of fire. And that's very clear from Matthew 13, verses 42 and 50, that when an unbeliever is thrown into hell, the activity described there is described as weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's undeniable from Matthew 13, verses 42 and 50. You also have the same expression that's used uh, in this other locality called the outer darkness. In the outer darkness, there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And he got those verses there. So the question then arises, are they two different localities or are they one and the same? All right. And there are many pastors that identify them and there are many pastors that separate them. See, uh, so some pastors walk in on the weeping and gnashing of teeth activity and identify the outer darkness with the furnace of fire or hell. They say it's all the same. And that's my, my understanding of it, that if you're not going into the kingdom, you're going to hell. And at the beginning of the millennial kingdom, all unbelievers are removed from planet Earth. See, others explain it as an earthly setting with hell-like regrets. In other words, the activity is the same. It's weeping and gnashing of teeth, but they say that the uh, it's a different location. They find two different localities that have similar activities. And so it's an earthly setting, not a hell setting. Uh, it does have hell-like regrets, but they do distinguish the outer darkness as being different from the furnace of fire. All right, and I used to, uh, I used to lean in that direction. And even way back, if you ever listened to uh, uh, number 105 in our Life of Christ series, back in a previous episode, uh, when we addressed weeping and gnashing of teeth, I think it was from the Matthew 8 um, application. 
um, then you can view the outer darkness as being an earthly setting on earth, but outside of the garden or banquet hall or Jerusalem or the facility where Christ is, uh, where he's teaching and so forth. And so you're outside, you're still on earth, but you're outside of the, the festivities, see. And um, a lot of authors take it that direction as well. I'm telling you that this is my conviction that it's one and the same. That if you're excluded from the feast, you're excluded from the kingdom. Particularly, you, you can't take it any other way at the beginning of the millennial kingdom. Because at the very beginning, with the sheep and goat judgment, with the wilderness judgment of Israel, every unbeliever is removed from the planet. So you can't take it any other way but that. See, if you start to push some of these feasts back later in the thousand year span, then you have to evaluate whether or not uh, an unbeliever is simply expelled from the geography or whether an unbeliever is actually cast from the earth and thrown into the and thrown into hell. And that's a different matter we'll address when we get to the uh, parable of the wedding feast, when the father is preparing a wedding feast for his son. Okay, so wanted to make sure we recap that so that we don't. Um, and and I don't know how much reading you do. If you ever read Reign of the Serpent Kings, uh, Servant, Servant Kings, not Serpent King, Reign of the Servant Kings by Jody Dillo, then you will um, encounter that. You'll encounter the concept of an outer darkness being on the earth and being separate from the aspect of hell. And and uh, that might be an interesting study for you to pursue or not, depending on uh, on where you are presently in your in your walk. Okay. I think the language here, though, is consistent with the kingdom language where he says, I never knew you. For example, many will say on that day, Lord, Lord, we did this, we did that. And he and he tells them he de- has them depart to the outer darkness or depart to the fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And so we can identify those things together. And uh, I think it's a simpler approach at that point. My basic rule of thumb is keep it simple. <laughs> you know, if if there's a simple way of understanding a passage, that's chances are that's what it is. The father designed it for because the father designed the word to be understood by believers, not uh, to be worked apart and, and confused and then reworked and then reconfused and then only understood by some kind of Bible scholar or expert that thinks he knows what the passage is dealing with. All right. Still to be evaluated is the timing of this feast as well as the other feasts. For example, this is a dinner with the prophets. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all the prophets of Israel. It's a dinner with the prophets. And by the way, has nothing to do with you or me. <laughs> All right? We're church age saints. We're royal family of God. We're bride of Christ. We are not. This is a reward for Jewish people to, to feast and celebrate with their Jewish prophets. Starting with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and going all the way through the whole, I imagine, you know, Ezekiel and Daniel and Isaiah and Jeremiah and all these guys are going to be there. It's a Jewish reward. It is not for us or even for the Gentiles. So we want to recognize the timing of this feast as it relates to the judgments at the beginning of the millennium. Is it prior to the thousand years? In other words, is it post um, Armageddon, but pre 
uh, thousand years. When do, the thousand years, by the way, does not start immediately on the morning after Armageddon. There, there's going to be a transitionary period of time because sheep and goat judgment has to take place. Wilderness judgment has to take place. The burning of the, of the uh, bodies has to take place. There's a lot of uh, construction that has to take place. There's going to be changes to the geography as Jerusalem is lifted up. There's going to be a lot of uh, a period of time in there that Daniel 12 talks about in between the uh, end of the tribulation and the beginning of the thousand-year reign. I don't believe you can start the thousand-year reign until the unbelievers are removed and Jesus Christ takes his seat, is coronated in Jerusalem in a very definite um, ceremony to mark the beginning of that thousand-year reign. Satan has to be laid hold of and, and bound and thrown into the abyss for the thousand years. There's a lot of transition that takes place. So is it prior to the thousand years? Is it early in the thousand years? Is it midway through? Is it near the end? By the time you get to the very end, there's going to be a considerable number of unbelievers once again on the planet. And so uh, uh, all of those are things that you have to take into account when you provide an outline for. And to be honest with you, any outline I come up with is going to be going to have a fair component of guesswork attached to it because the scriptures don't exactly specify with precision when in the kingdom these things occur. See. And uh, as I've already given away, I told you to think about it the last week, but I already gave it away. Uh, this is the prophetic dinner feast, the prophetic feast with, with the Jewish prophets. It's not the same as the wedding feast the father puts on for his son. It's not the same as the wedding supper that the son and that the bride and the groom partake in themselves. There are different feastings that will occur both in heaven and on earth. And uh, breaking those out should be a fun, uh, a fun project as well. All right, well, that gets us then to the second half of this episode, verses 31 through 35. Just at that time, some Pharisees approached, saying to him, Go away, leave here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I reach my goal. Nevertheless, I must journey on today and tomorrow and the next day, for it cannot be that a prophet would perish outside of Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together, just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not have it. Behold, your house is left to you desolate, and I say to you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. All right. So, a lot of doctrine we want to cover here. First of all, which Herod are we talking about? We're talking about Herod Antipas. If you ever do your studies on Herods, there were tons of Herods, um, descendants of the, the first, Herod the Great. Herod Antipas was ruler of Galilee and Perea. Herod Antipas was ruler of Galilee and Perea. If you've got little Bible maps in the back of your Bible, then you, you understand the region there. Uh, Judea was the region around Jerusalem. Just north of there was Samaria. Just north of there was Galilee. All on the western side of the Jordan River, between the Jordan River and the, and the uh, Mediterranean Sea. Then on the eastern side of the Jordan River was this Perean region, basically due east of Judea and Samaria. Then you got a little bit north of Perea and you get into the Decapolis region, a, a Greek region there on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. So, um, 
In any event, Herod Antipas was a tetrarch, and he had two of the four regions when, uh, when Herod's uh, original kingdom was broken up into four parts, and Herod Antipas received two out of those four. So he had the Galilean region up north, and then he also had this Perean region to the east. And this is what makes their warning inconsistent, because Jesus has just spent the better part of three years uh, in Galilee. He's just spent the better part of three years in a territory region that was already subject to uh, to Herod, to this very same Herod here, Herod Antipas. Uh, the idea that he's in danger now that he's over in the Perean region, uh, any different than where he'd been in Galilee for three years, doesn't make sense. Because if Herod really wanted him dead, then he would have already been under danger in the, in the Galilean region. Herod had sovereignty there, had soldiers, had uh, the ability to lay hands on him there in Galilee for all that period of time. Now, Herod is wicked. He is unstable. He's the one that, that chopped off the head of John the Baptist. All right. So he is, uh, he is a, a bad guy. <laughs> if you, if you chart, if you put people into a good guy, bad guy kind of category, Herod Antipas is a bad guy. Okay. Not saved, living in the world and for the world and, and, uh, came, uh, under uh, rebuke from John the Baptist and, uh, and, uh, ended up taking John's head in that uh, previous episode. I do believe that Jesus' prolonged ministry in Galilee discounts the potential danger coming from a brief ministry in Perea. If, if Herod was truly hostile, like these Pharisees are trying to say he is, then uh, the danger could have uh, come at any time during that three-year ministry in, in Galilee and not, uh, not be particular to this region here in Perea. It's much more likely the Pharisees were trying to get Jesus to go to Jerusalem. And I think the answer that he gives them exposes that. He says, don't, he says, relax. I'm on my way to Jerusalem. Don't worry about it. You know, you want to put me to death. You've been trying for more than a year now to put me to death. Um, don't worry about it. I'm going to Jerusalem. That's where your trap is laid and that's where I'm going. And Jesus says, I would never dream of letting you guys murder me anywhere else besides Jerusalem. <laughs> okay. There's no more fitting location for a prophet to die. Because now, Prophets have died elsewhere, but it is, uh, there is no city other than Jerusalem that quite holds the record that they hold for, uh, for putting prophets to death. And that comes across, I think, in the tongue-in-cheek way that Jesus often speaks when he utters the pronouncements that he does. So, uh, in any event, you've got, to take this, uh, you've got to take this question one of two ways. Either it's a legitimate warning from Pharisees who have his best interest at heart, or... There's duplicity involved from Pharisees that want him dead. And uh, what's the description we see much more frequently in the gospel record? We see the duplicity. All right. We see the duplicity again and again and again. And um, when there is the exception to the rule, like Nicodemus, for example, Joseph of Arimathea, when there is an exception to the rule, the gospel record always spells it out. Always says, by the way, this Pharisee happened to be a believer. <laughs> this Pharisee happened to believe in Jesus, but kept things quiet for fear of the Jews, things like that. We don't have any statement like that here saying that these Pharisees were saved or these Pharisees believed in Jesus. And so I think in the absence of a statement like that, it's best to uh, to handle the uh, this passage like you would other passages related to the Pharisees. So those two things. 
how do we typically understand the Pharisees acting as a brood of vipers wanting him dead? And then secondly, the Jesus' presence in Perea is not any more dangerous than it had been for the three years he was in Galilee. Because Herod Antipas was the sovereign over both regions. All right? He was sovereign over both regions. Pontius Pilate, of course, is sovereign over the region of Judea. But he gave the, the Sanhedrin a lot of leeway to handle Jewish matters uh, themselves. And so their plot to murder him in Jerusalem was what they were trying to get him to, uh, to fall for. Much more likely, the Pharisees were luring Jesus to Jerusalem. So Jesus has a message for that fox. Now, this is my third line of reasoning. I think there's, these are the three main bits of testimony that tell me that these guys aren't legitimate. They're, they're coming to warn him, and yet they have access back to Herod to send him a message right back, see. And so he's sending a reply to, uh, to Herod, and I think it's testimony to the fact that Herod doesn't want him dead. And Herod, actually, Herod would, would love to have Jesus come talk to him. Herod uh, has heard some wonderful things from everything Jesus did in Galilee. And Herod, uh, for some time, was really hoping that he could, uh, you know, book an audience, that he could bring Jesus in and do some miracles, do some tricks. I want to see what you can do. Are you a real miracle worker kind of a guy? We'll see that here as well. But Jesus calls him a fox. Jesus calls him a fox. We read in verse 32, he said to them, go and tell that fox. Now, you have to ask yourself, was he speaking about Herod there exclusively or did he have a second object in mind? Was he speaking to Herod and also to Satan as well? Did he have a, was it a dual message designed for the human being, but also designed for the power behind the throne? And I think if you are minded, if you are angelic conflict mindful, then you will evaluate who is the what is motivating different things. We understand because we have the passage in first Corinthians that tells us if the rulers of this age had understood the wisdom of God, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. We know there was satanic motivation behind everyone involved in the death of Jesus Christ, motivating the Romans, motivating the religious Jews, motivating every unbeliever that brought about the cross uh, in human terms. It was brought about through angelic motivation. In any event, I think specifically that fox is a good term as it applies to uh, to Herod. If you want to pursue fox studies, you can. Foxes are, are uh, uh, crafty little guys, and they're featured more in the Old Testament than the New Testament. Uh, and the vocabulary is, is interesting because it's, it could apply equally to both foxes and jackals. Um, I think there's passages that are more likely to be jackals than foxes as far as that goes. When, when Samson tied uh, torches to the tails of 200 uh, foxes, much more likely that they were jackals rather than foxes at that point. Uh, simply because they travel in larger packs and larger numbers than foxes uh, than foxes do. But anyway, I'm not going to debate foxes and jackals this morning. Uh, both were considered crafty. Both were considered to be underhanded. Um, there are passages, though, that talk about haunting of ruins and uh, devouring bones and uh, like in a scavenger mode. And if you're if you're in a scavenger passage, that's jackals. Foxes are not scavengers, but but jackals are scavengers. So, if if you want to really distinguish between foxes and jackals, that might be a 
a gruesome way of doing it. <laughs> okay? Just ask yourself if there's a scavenger carrying kind of function going on, then uh, you're better off giving the English word jackal instead of, uh, instead of fox. All right. But here's the message. Jesus tells him, I'm fully engaged in the angelic conflict. Isn't that interesting? The warning, the Pharisees' warning is, uh, Herod wants to kill you. His reply is, hey, I'm fully engaged in the angelic conflict. And not only that, but I'm winning. <laughs> right? Every encounter with demons is resulting in the demons losing. In the demons being expelled. In the, in the power of God being brought to bear for the realm of humanity be delivered from demonic empowerment in things that are happening there. So, sub-point one then, Jesus remains engaged in the angelic conflict to the very end. There's still work to do. I'm not quitting now. I'm not running away. Jesus remains engaged in the angelic conflict to the very end. And he says that, in fact, twice. Verse two, uh, 32 and verse 33. That uh, the, the timetable is sent. There's a, he, he speaks a message here regarding three days. We're going to talk about that here in a moment. But he says, you know, there's a finite period of time here at work. And each day from here to the end, I'm going to be about my father's business. Today, tomorrow, and the next. There's a finite period of time. Three days. He uses the language of three days. And he says, that's today, tomorrow, and the next. And I'm going to stay busy. I'm going to keep serving the father today, tomorrow, and the next. You have it in verse 32 where he says, uh, Behold, I cast out demons, perform cures. Today, tomorrow, and the third day, I reach my goal. So he's got it all charted out. The end of his ministry is going to come with precision and he's going to stay busy each step of the way. Again, verse 33. Nevertheless, I must journey on. See, he's going to go where the Father wants him. He's going to do what the Father wants him to do. And every step of the way is going to be according to the will of the Father, not running away from problems, not hiding from conflict, not responding or reacting to rumors that Pharisees are spreading. Nevertheless, I must journey on again today, tomorrow and the next, for it cannot be that a prophet would perish outside of Jerusalem. He remained, remains engaged. Secondly, the idiom does not require a literal three day time span. In other words, he's not. This is not the Passion Week. This is, not, this is not Tuesday of the Passion Week where he's going to the cross on, on Good Friday. It's, a, it's an idiom that is being spoken here in a message, a verbal message. So the idiom does not require a literal three-day time span, but it does reveal, I think it's significant that he chooses the expression, it does reveal the time span that is heavy on Jesus' heart. Remember why your heart and mind has to be guarded in Christ Jesus? It's heavy on Jesus' heart and mind. And it likely foreshadows his literal three days in the grave. I have no doubt that he specifically chose the expression. Very consistently why Hosea chose the expression in Hosea chapter 6. Because it does speak of the three days that Jesus will, will spend in the grave after the work of the cross. So the idiom does not require a literal three-day time span. We have a lot of expressions ourselves, and every language does, that uh, reflects a finite period of time. And, and they're just idiomatic uses, okay? Uh, you tell me uh, you want to do something, and I say, okay, well, just give me a minute. Now, do I mean a literal 
minute. So you, you break out your stopwatch and you're timing 60 seconds. And when the stopwatch goes off, you're like, oh, that's it. You've had your minute. See. Or uh, it's past your child's bedtime and <clears throat> they're, they're in the middle of doing something and they say, oh, it'll just be a couple minutes. Well, that's an idiom, isn't it? A couple of minutes uh, may not be a literal two minutes of 60-second durations. You want to be, get a little bit more precision on that idiom, that figure of speech. What do you mean by that? See. And does it not seem just like yesterday when we started this Life of Christ series? So that means it was Tuesday, uh, September 29th when we started this? No, it wasn't yesterday. Not the literal yesterday. But we used the expression yesterday. It seems like yesterday. Okay. So there are a lot of uses like that. Uh, notice, though, how it's used in Hosea. And this is, by the way, where <clears throat> we do very well. I think um, the non-literal hermeneutic struggles, well, they don't have any rules and guidelines anyway. They just allegorize everything and make the Bible say what they want it to say. But they will accuse churches like ours of being um, uh, wooden, uh, that we just were wooden literalists. We take, we take everything literally and we're trapped. Maybe they tell us that we're trapped by our literal hermeneutic. And, the, and if it says something, then that's what it means and so forth. If the plain language means what it means, that somehow we're so closed-minded in our wooden literal hermeneutic that we, we uh, you know, we're wrong in, in our different approaches. And nothing could be further from the truth. We actually have a tremendous advantage in our hermeneutic that we do approach the Scriptures literally, but when we see an idiom, when we see a figure of speech, we have no problem ex uh, accepting it as a figure of speech and we handle it just fine as a figure of speech. All right, well... This is what we have here in a prophetic message in Hosea chapter 6. Come, let us return to the Lord, for He has torn us, but He will heal us. He has wounded us, but He will bandage us. He will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day, that we may live before Him. So let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. He is go His going forth is as certain as the dawn. He will come to us like the rain, like the spring rain watering the earth. All right, we can stop there. Take Verses 1 through 3 is an idiom here. But recognize, of course, that this is a figure of speech. It is recognizing the plan of God is still faithful. It's unfolding in the Father's time frame. And the expression, two days and on the third day, is showing a very finite window. It's showing a very short period of time. See, uh, there's something I want to get done. I've I got to get it done in just the next couple of days. Okay, We might even use something similar today. In other words, it's a finite period of time. In Hosea's call here for repentance, wanting the, the Jewish people to be restored to a, a right walk with the Lord. Now, even though it's an idiom, after two days on the third day, can you also see within that idiom that, yes, there is, a, there is an illusion, not illusion, allusion, where it alludes to the, 
the uh, work of Jesus Christ, where it alludes to uh, uh, the, the cross and the death, burial, resurrection and all that. Well, of course, there's an allusion there because it's a three-day deal. But it's not a literal three days as it applies to the audience of this message right here. The destruction of the northern kingdom, the sweeping away of Israel to Assyria, and then 70 years later, the, or 150 years later, the captivity of the southern kingdom of Judah. They're 70 years in captivity before they return back. It's going to be a long time before a remnant returns back to Jerusalem and serves the Lord here. It's not going to be a 72-hour literal time span from when Hosea utters this message. Okay. Anyway, more on that coming up because we're going to have Hosea before we know it in our uh, Minor Prophet series. So back to Jesus and his idiom. Again, does not require, he's not literally, it's not the Passion Week. He hasn't had his Palm Monday triumphal entry at this point. He's not ready to go to the cross. We're not in the in the uh, deal here. And by the way, he's going to repeat this message again during the Passion Week. It's a message he's delivered on several occasions leading from now leading up to the, the, uh, the death on the cross. As far as Israel's house being left desolate. We'll see the other example here shortly. Jesus' lament over Jerusalem is similar to Jeremiah's and it will be delivered at least once more before his death. That's in Matthew 23, verses 37 through 39, the Mount Olivet Discourse, that, uh, which does take place in the, uh, in the Passion Week. But this lament over Jerusalem, similar to Jeremiah's. In other words, Jesus is not the first prophet to grieve over the negative volition encountered by God's chosen people. That uh, Yahweh is faithful to send prophets to Yahweh's people, and Yahweh's people didn't like <laughs> the prophets that... Uh, that uh, Yahweh sent to them. Back in Lamentations, you'll see this. The Lamentations of Jeremiah. Lamentations 5.18. And, you know, how many, uh, how many pastors in church history would lament the society in which they lived and would grieve over a, uh, a nation that used to fear the Lord and doesn't seem to have the same uh, hunger for spiritual things. Lamentations chapter 5. Interestingly enough, like chapter 1, 2, 4, all these chapters uh, have 22 uh, verses. They are um, uh, acrostics. In uh, chapter 3, you've got 66 verses. They're still acrostics, 3 per, three per uh, letter. So you get 22 times 3 is 66. Here in chapter 5, it's 22 verses long, but it's not an acrostic. It's like uh, Jeremiah deliberately wanted to grab people's attention and compose another 22 verses and, and yet not have the, uh, the alphabetical or alphabetical uh, approach to, to uh, you like that? Alphabetical? To uh, the situation here. Well, bad things happen when your nation is destroyed. Bad things happen. Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our reproach. Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our houses to aliens. We have become orphans without a father, mothers like widows. We have to pay for our drinking water. Our wood comes to us at a price. What happens when a nation, which is abundantly blessed with natural resources, is not allowed the benefit of those resources? 
because you're not permitted to cut down the trees God gave you. You're not permitted to pump the oil God gave you. You're not permitted to uh, make use of the land God provided for you. It's one thing if a foreign nation uh, has dominion over you and doesn't allow you to do it. What happens when it's your own nation and a bunch of environmental idiots that don't let you make use of the resources God gave you? In any event. (laughs) Our pursuers are at our necks. We are worn out. There is no rest for us. We have submitted to Egypt and Assyria to get enough bread. And our fathers sinned and are no more. It is we who have borne their iniquity. Slaves rule over us. There is no one to deliver us from their hand. We get our bread at the risk of our lives because of the sword of the wilderness. Our skin has become as hot as an oven because of the burning heat of famine. They ravished the women in Zion, the virgins of the cities of Judah. Princes were hung by their hands. Elders were not respected. Young men worked at the grinding mill and youth stumbled over loads of wood. Um, It's tragic when your nation is invaded. See, when you are conquered, it's a horrible, horrible thing in the history of the world. And um, if you're a student of history, you understand that. You understand what happens to the elderly, to the women, to the men, to everything that happens to a conquered people. Except unless, of course, the conquerors happen to be the Americans. And I remember being a part of the occupying army that, that uh, took custody of the city of Kuwait. And we were the, the uh, mar- we had the city under martial law. And we were the, we were the conquerors. And I remember thinking that uh, we're pretty unique in the history of the world for a conquering people that didn't uh, rape and plunder and, and pillage and, and, uh, and any of that. In the history of the world, it's pretty unique. Where was I? I'm having flashbacks here. I'm headed for verse 18. The joy of our hearts is ceased. Our dancing is turned to mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. Because of this, our heart is faint. Because of these things, our eyes are dim. Because of Mount Zion, which lies desolate. The same word there. Desolations. The abomination of desolation. The... um, Weeping that Jeremiah, Jeremiah had to watch it fall around him. He saw it from the inside as uh, the Babylonians brought it down. And there's your foxes. <laughs> because of Mount Zion, which lies desolate, foxes prowl in it. And so you just know, here's Jesus, knowing that the negative volition of the Jewish people is rejecting the Messiah. Knowing that the Christ is going to be crucified. Knowing that the kingdom is going to be delayed. Knowing that Jerusalem will be desolate, foxes will dwell in it. And then here comes uh, these messengers from Herod. And he's got foxes on the mind and he has a message for that fox. I find it pretty interesting how he replies to, uh, to these Pharisees with the language of a fox. All right. So that his lament is similar. There's other prophets that have similar laments, but we'll uh, let those go for today. And it's not the only time he delivers it. Join me over in Matthew 23, and you'll notice similar language, almost word for word. I think it's a sermon that he preached again and again and again in different cities and different towns and different places between this point of time all the way to the cross, lamenting over Jerusalem. So in Matthew 23, verses 37 through 39, this is after he pronounces these woes upon the Pharisees. And um, you'll note 
There's even future prophets, wise men, and scribes that are still on the way. He backs up here as he's pronouncing woes to the Pharisees. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? Again, that's why I think if you don't enter into the kingdom, the weeping and gnashing of teeth takes place in hell. Every unbeliever is ejected from planet earth after the battle of Armageddon. Behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city so that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Now some of this is what Jesus is speaking, but he's looking forward to the tribulation when they will be realized on the earth. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. I'll break this down for you here as well. Uh, because it's the root verb for apostle. He can't yet reveal the fullness of the church, but he is alluding to it in, uh, in this way. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. I love this verse, because this verse expresses God's will and man's will in a tension that we don't always like. The will of God and the will of man. And uh, there are schools of theology that insist on magnifying the one and denying the other. I think we need to recognize that both function and we need to understand how they function and uh, how God responds when those uh, wills are in tension against one another. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. Same language we have in Luke. And yet, months later, this is actually the Passion Week. This is the Olivet Discourse in the in the uh, week in which Christ is crucified. So he gives this uh, message repeatedly. Look at verse 39. For I say to you from now on, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He's looking, in other words, they're going to require the tribulation of hell on earth in order to accept their Christ. They're not saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord today. They're rejecting that Jesus of Nazareth is the Lord today. I'm talking about the bulk of the Jewish people, the Jewish nation today. They're not there in belief. They're not there in faith. They're there in unbelief. They're certainly not there under the authority of a Davidic throne. All right. Some details here. 13 minutes remaining. Wow. I haven't seen that in a long time. That's interesting. I used to have font problems like that years ago. But before I started using Cardo, it's interesting that it shows up again. Jerusalem is guilty of stoning the prophets and the sent ones. The prophets and the sent ones. And of course, Jesus Christ himself is the greatest of the prophets and apostles ever to be sent to Jerusalem. He is the prophet like unto Moses, promised in Deuteronomy 18.15, and is the apostle and high priest of the uh, confession of the church as revealed in Hebrews 3.1. The greatest of the apostles and the prophets ever put to death in Jerusalem is Jesus Christ Himself. But Jerusalem is guilty of killing the prophets, prophetai, and the ones having been sent. You've got the uh, participle of apostello, apostolmenoi. Let me get back to my verse, Luke 13. And yet, isn't it interesting? 
Uh, well, you would think vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. You would think that the Lord would take vengeance on a city uh, for killing a prophet and so forth. And how gracious God is to defer that. God uh, does not destroy Jerusalem for killing uh, Isaiah or for killing uh, or throwing Jeremiah down into a well or for abusing uh, another prophet or for all the things that they did. They put to death all these prophets. And yet God deferred wrath upon Jerusalem. Why? It was the place of his dwelling. It was the place of his mercy. It was the city of David. There were blessings on Jerusalem because of David. But he holds it all in reserve until they put to death his beloved son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And at that point, in their pride, in their arrogance, in their defiance, his blood be on our head and on our children. And boy, was it. Not just his blood, but the blood of all the prophets, from righteous Abel to, the, to Zechariah, son of Berechiah, who died uh, before the altar. Everything that had been previously withheld, previously been reserved, all of it now comes down upon Jerusalem and the destruction of, of Jerusalem following the death of Jesus Christ. And there's an application of divine discipline there that lasted nearly 2,000 years. Lasted nearly 2,000 years. It wasn't until the 20th century that the Jewish people were permitted to have a sovereign nation in, uh, in their land. All right, so you got the, the term prophetai and, uh, and then the participle from apostello to send. Hopefully you're familiar with the prophet, uh, the, the message of the coming prophet in Deuteronomy 18.15. Moses said that a prophet like unto me will come, and that's uh, Jesus. And then uh, the apostle and high priest of our confession is Hebrews 3.1. God's will is one thing. Wanted to gather Israel as a hen gathers her chicks. But Jerusalem's negative volition is something else. Recognize that. This verse is so powerful. How often I wanted to gather your children together. And this is where... Uh, as I mentioned, Calvinists, there's other schools that really struggle with this. And they cannot conceive of God not realizing what he wants. If he wants something to happen, then it should happen. And they've got this definition of sovereignty that says everything God wants, God gets. And yet you've got a passage like this. You've got, another, you've got a passage that God desires for none to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Well, that doesn't happen, does it? There are people who do perish. There are folks who don't get saved. I think it's actually greater than the number who do get saved. Because broad is the path that leads to destruction. Many there are going to go there too. Narrow is the gate and few. The Bible tells me many and few. So I don't know what that ratio is, but many compared to few tells me there's more lost than saved. The elect are in the minority as far as that goes. And yet God desires for none to perish. So how... Does that work where God has a desire that does not be realized? See, how does that work? Well, he has other desires as well. He also desires for his son to be glorified. And for his son to be glorified, then the plan has to be crafted in such a way to bring about that glory. Anyway, if you want more on that, we've, got, we've been dealing a lot with uh, election and a lot with these things in soteriology on uh, on Sunday nights. But simply notice this, that he has a will and they have a will. And it's not God's will to force theirs. 
In fact, it's God's will, it's God's program when he created volitional creatures and established the law of sowing and reaping. That God will not be mocked. You will reap what you sow. And when you make choices, you face consequences for those choices. And so there's his will. I wanted to gather your children together. But you would not have it. You would not have it. See. And, uh, you know, pastors learn a lot about this when you teach the Bible and you lay out the biblical principles and you uh, you uh, provide all the armament and weapons and equipment and, and instruction and food and believers have everything they need to make right choices and, and, and live their lives for the glory of Jesus Christ. And then they don't. <laughs> and they go out and just do whatever they want to do. Say, based on whatever. Not based on the Bible. Not based on uh, the will of God. But based on what they want to do. And so, uh, then what do you do? You just say, well... I had my desire, you had your desire, and uh, then you look at verse 35 and you say, all right, there's consequences to your desire. Your house is left to you desolate. If you pursue negative volition, there are consequences for choices you make. And so I say to you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. All right. In other words... They cannot have their king. They've rejected their king. And they will not, by the, by the idiom, again, idiom, see me, the idiom there, they will not see him or they will not receive him as king. They will not submit to his kingship until the second advent. Until as a nation, they are humbled to receive their king. Okay? This is a group address here. You, y'all, the Jewish nation, Israel, the, the Jewish people, must accept their king. And until that day comes, he's not coming back. In other words, it's going to take tribulation before Armageddon, before second advent can occur. Thirdly, this desolation of Jerusalem, it is a common prophetic theme. In fact, I had to trim my verse list down because you can find this in every single one of the prophets. All right. But starting in Leviticus 26, when he gives them the cycles of discipline, what happens when God destroys a nation and removes a nation from human history? Now, that's a pattern we want to learn. If you haven't spent time in Leviticus 26, uh, bone up on it because our nation may be headed there. All right? And keep in mind that what's unique about Israel is that even when they go through their cycles, they're still promised a restoration because God has eternal promises to the Jewish people. A Gentile dog nation like us, if we go through these cycles, there's no guarantee that we're coming back. We have no covenant promises. See. So you have the language of desolation. You have it in Leviticus 26, verses 31 and 32. You've got it spoken of again in 1 Kings 9 8. That's when Solomon was dedicating the temple warning them about negative volition and abandoning the Lord and how God would bring... I mean, they just barely get this temple built. And he's talking about the temple being desolate. All right? We'll have some similar words when we dedicate our new building too. Let's not get prideful about this glorious structure. Let's recognize this. It can burn down tomorrow. Or we could hear a trumpet and let the unbelievers have it when we're gone. Oh, it's just a facility. It's just an earthly structure. 
Let's not get full of ourselves. Jeremiah 12, verses 7 and 11. Ezekiel 36. There's a trinity of verses there. 34, 35, 36. Daniel 9, 26 and 27. I thought we'd get further today. That's all right. We'll come back. We've got one more next week, and then I'll have a week off the following week when I'm in Spokane. Um, ladies will be deciding, I guess, if you're going to still have prayer or not on that non-teaching week. But um, anyway, we'll have one more next week. So I think rather than... I do want to deal with this. I do want to talk about the desolation. I do want to talk about a national destruction and talk about the promises of, of restoration. Also, Daniel 9. You can't just gloss over Daniel 9. Uh, Daniel 11.31, Daniel 12.11. There's so much there. And we also want to understand the expression here. When he quotes Psalm 118, the pronouncement, you will not see me, is not speaking of the triumphal entry on Palm Monday. Some people say it has to be. Saying that he's going to, he's avoiding Jerusalem until he makes a triumphal entry and then they can put him to death. That's not what he's talking about. Because the uses in Matthew come after that triumphal entry. In Matthew 23. So I'll highlight that as well. Um, we'll come back next week and we'll review points three and four. Spend some time in those prophets and address this uh, pronouncement. Because it's not talking about the, the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday or Palm Monday. It's talking about second advent. That there was actually only, uh, it, was, it was children and, and a few... Uh, a few believers, just a handful that were singing his praises. They were quoting Psalm 118. They were loving the fact that here's the king, humble, riding on a colt, fulfilling scripture. The bulk of Israel hated him and were trying to shut the kids up. <laughs> the rulers, the Pharisees and the scribes and these guys were trying to get these kids to shut up. And Jesus says, you can't make them shut up. And if he did, then the stones would start screaming out. See, well. As a nation, they were rejecting their king, even when there was a remnant of believers that had divine viewpoint. I wonder about our nation. We may have a remnant of believers with divine viewpoint, but by and large, if you survey all of the redeemed in this country, how many are oriented to divine viewpoint and how many are caught up in the things of this cosmos? And ask yourself, what is the true remnant really doing in this land? All right, so we'll come back to this again one week from today. I do want to, I want to spend some time on those. So we'll uh, we'll spend one more session, and then we'll move on to the dinner that he has in Luke 14. He goes to a Pharisee's house, and uh, wouldn't you know it, they have him in on the Sabbath, and here's a man suffering. And at this point, Jesus is just going to put it to him, <laughs> challenging, defiant. He says, is it right or wrong to heal a guy on the Sabbath? And they don't say a word. They can't answer him. So uh, anyway, we'll deal with that as well. Thank you, Father, for today. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for your grace. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.